This is Generation Justice, a multimedia movement that trains youth to harness the power of media for social change. I'm Sami Assad. Tonight we have a special program looking back at 2016 and bringing you our best. I'm Polly Dineklaw. As we end this year, it is important that we stop and celebrate some of the media we've created around this year's biggest issues. Whether it's the refugee experience in America, the school-to-prison pipeline, or the No Dapple movement, our community feels the impact. I'm Matthew Brown. And I'm Jakia Fuller. Many of the issues we covered this year are interconnected, and they all have a very real human element that cannot be overlooked. Through the voices of poets, activists, and authors, we will revisit some of the most powerful stories of resilience in 2016. First, as always, we'll start with some music. Here is Now is a Start by A Fine Frenzy. Over the past decade, our country has seen a tremendous increase in the abuse of opioids like prescription painkillers and heroin use. In New Mexico, our own communities have suffered the consequences of this epidemic. In April, Kateri Zuni spoke with journalist and author Sam Quinones to discuss his book, Dreamland, which chronicles the growth of this problem. Let's hear what they had to say. My name is Kateri Zuni, and I am speaking with Sam Quinones. Sam is a journalist and writer of the acclaimed book Dreamland, which gives an eye-opening and poignant account of the opiate epidemic in the U.S. Welcome to Generation Justice. Sam, can I have you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, my name is Sam Quinones. I'm a journalist and author of the book Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. Just kind of getting into the book right off, Sam, as you write it, the opiate epidemic really has several moving parts. Can you give us a brief synopsis of the major contributors that you identified? Sure. Really, the first is a revolution in pain management in the United States that really promoted by kind of a young uh, group of pain specialists across the country, aided in that by the pharmaceutical uh, companies. 
and that held that we were a country in pain and we needed to treat it. And eventually they convinced, well, many, many doctors across the country, primary care doctors, ER docs and the rest, that this was the case and that they ought to be prescribing these pills far more aggressively, far more liberally than they had been. Many people got addicted from using these pills exactly as doctors prescribed. Others got addicted because there was now a massive new uh, supply of pills out there, and a lot of it leaked into the black market, and a lot of people used it recreationally, abused it. And many of those folks eventually switched to heroin because heroin now was coming from Mexico, which made it far cheaper, far more potent, far, far more prevalent, and a real cheap alternative to the pills on the street, which were, which were extraordinarily expensive. Those three things over a period of like 20 years and some other stuff, that's a bare, bare bones idea of, of how we got to the point where we are uh, today. New Mexico, as you know, has some of the highest rates of heroin use and overdose, especially in northern New Mexico. Can you give us an idea of the role that New Mexico has played in all this? In my own research, I came across the guy who basically brought black tar heroin to Santa Fe, to the Chimayo areas. That's my Nola Valley. That's really uh, this problem. And, And I think that was a telling part of it. People had lived, not well, but had lived with heroin addiction for decades. And these guys came with very, very high-potency heroin, and immediately people began dying. I think 2% of the area, the town of Chimahill, died in a two-year period. These were veteran heroin addicts, yet they were used to a heroin that was much, much weaker. And that is really the story of this whole epidemic. And so what we're seeing now all across the country is what happened in New Mexico in the late 1990s. What critique would you give of the media coverage that you have seen that has surrounded the issue? First, there wasn't a lot of it until the last year or so. Part of the problem was that the parents of the kids were unwilling to talk. People have said, you know, this is only an epidemic because it's lots of white kids dying, and that's why it's getting the attention. My response is, no, it was quiet because it was a white drug. The white families who have kids who are dying were mortified embarrassed, horrified that their kids would get addicted to this drug that they believe was like the worst of all worst of illegal drugs. Now you're seeing parents put heroin addiction in the obituaries of their kids on Facebook. They're on they're in parent groups. There are all kinds of very public ways that they're acknowledging this. But that is only in the last year. And it's really because of that um, that we've had lots more um, uh, uh, coverage of this. No one really covered it much. No one covered the heroin, the pills to heroin connection that to me was obvious. I think you're right. It is an obvious connection. And when you write about, you know, drug companies kind of abusing statistics to make it look like an mm-hmm. opiate derivative drug could somehow be non-habit forming or non-addictive, it just seems right. so counterintuitive to me. And I wonder, like, how is that even possible well, that's a very good question, and that's, uh, I, I think partly what happened was this. Americans became almost childish in their demands to be fixed. And so what ended up happening was all these doctors became kind of under the gun. And at the same time they were hearing this, they were also hearing from the pharmaceutical companies, and you know what, we have an answer for you. We have a solution, and it's easy, but 
they were not the only ones here. Most doctors mean very well. They want to help people, and they, they, they felt that this was uh, something that they absolutely had to do. And along come these kind of specious studies or non-studies or whatever you want to call them, and the pharmaceutical companies taking it door-to-door with this very, very aggressive sales pitch. In the early 90s, there was like 35,000 pharmaceutical sales reps. By 2003, there was 120,000. All of that kind of changed. And that's how you create a new conventional wisdom, I guess. I've heard you mention before that this book, specifically the title, is kind of a metaphor for America. Can you explain a little bit of that? Yes. I mean, the book comes from a swimming pool that existed in a town, a Rust Belt town, but at one time was a very thriving town in southern Ohio. Portsmouth, Ohio is the name of the town. And this town had a steel mill, it had shoe factories, it had a bunch of other businesses, a booming Main Street, and a real community. I mean, it had all of this was pro- provided this kind of immune system to a lot of social ills. The steel factory leaves in 1980. The uh, shoe factories have been leaving slowly, more of them leave. Uh, the people begin to leave. Main Street empties out. And in 1993, they closed this pool. This pool was like almost like the soul of the town. It was this place where everybody looked out for one another, where everybody saw one another. It was a very egalitarian place, and it was a wonderful place for everyone to grow up in community, not Mm -hmm. isolated. The town turned inward. It was half the size it had been. Uh, Walmart literally replaced of the pool as a social spot where the only place you actually saw anybody anymore was at Walmart. Mm. And this left the town extraordinarily uh, vulnerable and been extraordinarily vulnerable to a drug. Heroin and opiates are so isolated. They break everybody into like little individuals and nobody wants to be a part of anything. And from that, I, I drew a few lessons. But one was that, that isolation is heroin's natural habitat. And I tried to understand what is the common denominator between a very poor town now, like Portsmouth, and a very wealthy town like Charlotte or Portland, Oregon. And the common denominator is that the isolation we feel in America today is in all three of those places. We, we may be wealthy, we may be middle class, we may be poor, but the isolation is tremendous. We're all, no one is, is outside anymore. Parks, nobody plays in the park. All of this, it seems to me that the story of the pool in Portsmouth, Ohio, was the country's story in a certain way. Even though uh, much of the country is doing far better, of course, than Portsmouth, Ohio, it nevertheless was this a story of, of how if you create enough isolation, you will break down the societal immune system that your community has to a drug like heroin. Yeah, that's an important lesson to learn, embedding in Oh, community. I think so. It, it was not what I set out to write. I mean, I thought I was writing a crime book, a drug book, and in turn, it became a story more about who we become and what we become as Americans. Sam, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for your work in this book and as a journalist. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Thank you, Sam Quinones, for helping not only me understand the epidemic, but everybody listening. Before listening to you, I would not have guessed that opioid epidemic was caused by pharmaceutical companies. Again, thank you, Sam, for helping us to better understand this issue. Now here is Strawberry by Everclear. Never been here, never coming back. Never want to think about the things that happened today. Want to lay down on the warm ground. 
think I'm gonna need a little time to myself. Don't fall down now, you will never get up. Don't fall down now. Don't fall down now. Don't fall down now, you will never get up. Like Satan, you ask me if I wanna get high. Couple of bags down in Old Town. You tie your arm, ask me if I wanted to drive. Don't fall down now, you will never get up. Don't fall down now, don't fall down now. Don't fall down now, you will never get up. Don't fall down now, now. Street crawling with my strawberry burns. Ten long years in a straight line. They fall like water. Yes, I guess I fucked up again. Don't fall down now. You will never get up. Don't fall down now. Don't fall down now. You will never get up. Don't fall down now. Don't fall down now, you will never get up. Don't fall down now. The rhetoric surrounding the placement of refugees and immigration took a dark turn during this presidential election. But to millions of people, coming to this country means starting anew and rebuilding lives in safety and opportunity. In June, we met with Hanin Amr, who uses poetry to share her experience of moving to New Mexico from Iraq. Let's take a listen to that interview and her poem, To the Sun. I'm Jordan Unverzat. I'm a youth producer at Generation Justice, and I'm here today with Hanin Amir. Can you please tell me more about yourself? I'm Hanin, and I am 14 years old, and I've been living in the U.S. for about 70 years now, and I really, really love it. I've met some amazing people here, and I just, I love to write, I love to read. In Arabic, I would say, How have you started to form your identity in America? Well, I think a lot of that has to do with my friends, and I've been trying to make myself based on things that they, they teach me and they show me, but then also mixing it with my original culture from Iraq. So I've been kind of building myself based on things that I like, um, that I see Americans do. Even now with my friends, sometimes they'll talk a certain way or they say something and I take it too seriously, or I'd look at it a completely different way from what they meant. It's been a challenge just to kind of try and understand what they mean sometimes. Or there are lots of things that I don't know about the American culture. Like, um, I'll be talking about, like, Star Wars. I, mean, I don't know what that is, and they're always surprised to that. Sometimes I'm new to things, and I still am. I haven't seen Star Wars either, and I still get made fun of for it, so don't worry. <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> what do you miss most about Baghdad? I would say 
everything, I guess, except all the he and being really restricted, I guess. But I still feel like I had an amazing childhood. Sometimes I'll smell something here and it's really familiar and that kind of takes me back. At my grandparents' house, I used to stay a lot with my aunt, who was like my best friend, second to mom, of course. I remember she had her bed right next to a window. And the window was really big and she had plants around it. And I used to sit on the bed and just look out the window and kind of make up stories about the people that I see. And I just wish I could see everything one more time now to see if everything really was the way I thought it was before. Do you still write? Yeah. I don't keep a diary, but I'll just, I'll write poems. Or sometimes if I see a movie, it gives me an idea. And then I'll be listening to music, and that kind of gives me an idea, too. So I'll build something up. It's like that. Sometimes I'll write about something that frustrates me. Or if I read a book and it really interests me, I'll take the way that I understand it and make a thought out of that and write it down. And sometimes I'll just write down, like, parts of my life so that I can look back and see what it was before because I'm always interested in what my mom's life used to be like. And I want to make sure that I know that I have a way to remember what my life used to be like maybe 20 years from now. Is there anything else you want to add? You'd be surprised at things that you're able to accomplish if you try. And I know you've probably heard that a lot, but I never thought to try and write a book and get it published but I have thought about writing. And so if you're really into something, then try to make something out of that, especially if you're good. Then there's always a chance that you'll be able to make it more than it is. So yeah, have courage. I just think you're such an amazing human being and so talented. I'm happy that you're continuing to write, and I hope that you continue to share what you write. I look forward to reading future poems, and I feel really privileged to be able to speak with you today and hear you recite your own poem. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. Just hearing that makes me feel amazing, too. Now, here's Hanin's poem, To the Sun. To the Sun. Before. Yasamin, like the flower. White and innocent. Beautiful. My name, yet not like me. The loud sounds of war follow me everywhere. My dreams become nightmares. My nightmares follow into my waking hours. Everything seems to blur together. What is real and what is not. They are all the same. After. I rock my home, no longer the beautiful country it used to be. The tall palm trees that were full with dates, sweeter than the richest chocolate. The smell of kebab and bamiya filling my house. The bittersweet taste of home. Almost forgotten. But if I tried, I can taste it. What I do not miss. The power outages. The heat of a summer's day. Being afraid for my family and myself the shootings in the street, the startling sound of a bomb so close to home, danger keeping us inside, not even allowing us a small blessing of sunshine. And even when we could leave the house, what was to keep away the fear? Before, daughter of the devil, I do not understand why such a name was given to me. The girls run away from me like I am a curse. I ask my mother why. Now I understand. They are Muslim. I am in Dian. To them, my religion is wrong. It is a disgrace. To them, I really am a daughter of the devil. My mother has to wear that awful hijab. She has to wear it even during the summer. I hate it, but I'm glad that I'm not old enough to have to wear it too. If I wear it, then they won't hurt us. They will leave us alone, even if we are in Dian, my mother explains. 
My parents whisper about it a lot. I sit by their door and listen, careful not to get caught. I can see the look of concern in my mother's eyes, the lines of worry making their way across my father's forehead. But they still smile like everything is okay. I know that it's not. I wonder how long it would take for them to tell my two sisters and I just how not okay everything really was. They think I am too young to understand, but I am old enough. I know that we are going to have to leave Iraq. I know that by doing so, we are going to have to leave everything and everyone behind. Goodbye. Chaos. It feels like everyone is in a rush. Busy, packing, what to take, what to leave behind, what to do, where to go, relatives, friends. They have all come to try and help. Do not take that. You will not need it. You must take that. Do not wear any jewelry. America. We are going to America. The country that had bombed us in the first place. Fleeing to the enemy. How ironic. My younger sisters laugh and cheer. We are going to America. We are going to America. They sing. I sigh. Better not ruin their fun. The day we finally leave. I don't know whether to feel nervous, anxious, happy, or sad. I don't know whether to cry, smile, or laugh, but I do know to act brave. By this time, my sisters are no longer singing or dancing. Their cheeks are streaked with tears, suddenly realizing what leaving home really means. Can we come back tomorrow, or in a week, or in a month? So here asks. My mother slowly shakes her head and looks away. Then the question starts to spin in my mind. Will we ever come back? Chicago, my mother whispers in my ear. We are here, only one more plane to go. Her soft words ring in my ear, almost there. I breathe in the clean scent of the hotel room. I collapse on one of the beds. Relief washes over my body, so much more comfortable than an airplane seat. Presently. I do not know what state we are in now, or maybe I just don't remember. What I do know is that this is where we'll be staying. Inside out, backwards, and upside down. My life is being put into a blender. It is being shaken and flipped. Anything from my old life is being wrung out. Every drop of familiarity has now dried up, leaving me with all things new except my family. The state we are staying at is called New Mexico. Settling in is not working. I feel so frustrated for not knowing anything. It is all so confusing. This is not a nightmare. This is not a dream. You are not dreaming. You are awake. I have to keep telling myself this. How will I ever get used to this? It feels like I am on an alien planet. Some people that I see seem like aliens. I laugh, thinking how alien I must seem to them. A bell rings, startling me. Kids rush and push me out of their way. They talk in loud voices saying things that I cannot comprehend. The girls are not afraid to show their thighs, wearing bright, sparkly skirts that right up their legs. I enter a room, hopefully the right one. The teacher smiles. This is what school is going to be like? This new world? This new life? These new people? It all seems so weird right now. I will have to learn to make this my home. But it will never be the same again. Even if New Mexico will be my home, it won't be like it was before. I wonder when I will start to accept this, if ever. Home again. How quickly my sisters and I learned to speak English. Now my mother and father have to keep reminding us to speak Arabic in the house. 
but people can't tell that I am not American right away anymore. Now it takes a little longer for them to notice my small grammar mistakes when I talk, or my accent that is already fading. It still feels weird to walk into our new house and not see our old furniture. Sometimes I would wake up in the morning having forgotten where I am. Then I look around my room, get up, look out my window, and I remember. I'm not back in Iraq. I'm not surrounded by palm trees. I do not taste the sweet dates in the morning. I do not smell the fresh hobbies baking in the oven. But I am home, where there is a lot of dirt, but plants and trees too. No palm trees, but your cousin's dead. Not dates, but sweet, sticky syrup with pancakes. Change. Home has a new meaning. When I imagine home, I no longer see Iraq. Now, I see New Mexico. Hanin, thank you for sharing your gift of poetry with Generation Justice. Writing helped save my life at an early age, and I'm so happy that art has done the same for you. Thank you, Hanin, for sharing your poetry and your story. Now, here is Three Little Birds by Bob Marley. Welcome back. Tonight, we're celebrating the best moments of resilience that Generation Justice has covered in 2016. One of our favorite programs of the year focused on the movement for Black lives and the people who use activism and poetry to combat racism and heal community. Let's rejoin local spoken word poet Ebony Isis Booth and youth producer Joshua Horden to discuss her work and inspiration. Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Caleb Horton, and I am here with the incredible spoken word artist and co-founder of Burke Noir, Miss Ebony Isis Booth. Peace. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, thank you. We are so blessed to have you in studio today. Thank uh, you. It's a blessing to be here. Yes, ma'am. Uh, would you share a little bit more about yourself? Well, um, my name is Ebony Isis Booth. As you said, I am a spoken word poet, but also um, a program and communication coordinator. Um, I work in nonprofits. Um, I am the proud auntie of two amazing children, Alea and Corday, um, who are my niece and nephew, my stepson, Kalem, and, you know, my partner, Hakeem. So I'm real proud today to say that I am my own type of matriarch in my family unit. That's important. And that's a revolution for me right now is loving my family and um, 
bringing events, quality events to the community like Burke and Noir, which is a networking and performance artist showcase for African-American artists in and around New Mexico. Is there a poem you'd like to share with us? There is. Um, so I wrote this poem. It seems like it was like Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and Trayvon Martin. And it was just there was an there was a, a long strain where um, young black men were dying, like young, young. So I have this poem that I wrote kind of in dedication to um, the mothers, the parents who have to mourn publicly. And this is this is for them. Hey, Lordy Mama, I heard you wasn't feeling good. They spread dirty rumors all around the neighborhood. Tell me, tell me what you gonna do. Too soon are too many done, drowned in blood and power. Choked by batons and gunpowder. Ten thousand ways to die, but this trend leaves black folks ten thousand dollars shy of a respectable home going. Young corpses are costly. Cover the abrasions with cake foundation. Fashion neckties around severed spinal cords and bruised flesh. Black and blue flesh. Boys in blue tear through black boy flesh. Black boys buried in Jordans we thought they might die for. Big Mama and them allow Al Sharpton's people to flip through family albums to choose a good pick. One where the blue, broken baby with the big eyes looks like a nice boy. Launch a GoFundMe. Or judge a bereaved mother for not having her first, middle, or youngest child's lives insured. Primp and primetime mama and daddy for the spotlight. Consider the authenticity of designer frames damning tears on Piers Morgan tonight. She last spoke with her son last night. Yesterday, everything was all right. But today, black mommies and daddies are interrogated in HD, hiding behind knockoff shades, protecting us from seeing their gamma strength pain. Because just yesterday, they only knew each other's names and now beg the world for clicks to collect enough money to pay a man to handle the baby's blue, broken, black body. The baby boy you gestated, now forsaken down here, dead on granite in summertime, in the morgue, looking at a face that will offer no smirk or bear family resemblance next of kin, mother, father. Father. They had the same smile, but you can't tell right now. Yesterday, they laughed deep and mouths spread wide open, chest full of air and ambition. But today, bellowed from the darkest place where the light goes to fade, chest full of lead and systematic oppression. Conversations in the kitchen are now hushed and heavy. Sounds of sorrow provide a soundtrack. News cameras that never come when black boys burn holes through their reflections as an exercise in belonging somewhere. Take up spots on the block to displace the D-boys. Rhonda's coming from the shop to smooth the frayed hair and soothe the frazzled nerves of mama. See, she can't go on TV looking any old kind of way, so in ritual of black girl magic, they share herb and small white pills served in Advil caps with a sip of beer. Here, swallow this. Get ready to talk about how when you say he didn't deserve to die, you don't sound too maternal. 
Keep the weeping to a minimum. Tears read better on camera when they stream. What kind of child have you raised that he might find himself on the uncontested end of a barrel? Plastic gun tucked in his waistband like childhood contraband. What kind of child have you raised that he might find himself too big, too black, too alive, too much for this world before the men come to lay his body down for good this time? Tell us again how he was a good kid. Convince the world in this next 45 seconds segment that your pain is not dangerous. Tell us again where you were that day. But if you could somehow soften your face, perhaps then you wouldn't look so intimidating. The polls show that viewers are having a hard time sympathizing with you and your wailing kinfolk, crying over this, another dead body who no one has money to bury because planning funerals for children who have not yet lived does not make your list of things to do, when the only thing you have consistently excelled at is keeping your baby alive so one more nightly newscast before they give your now cold, blue, broken baby's body back before they let you mourn your murdered offspring. Get yourself together enough to get together enough to take off those shades. Stand before the world in another clip, telling us how you've forgotten and forgiven the men who did this. It's funny how powerful art can be. Yeah, I mean, it saved my life. My poetry is is angry and sad and honest because I have to use that to process. Um, it's not about me, you know, I'm a vessel. Um, you know, I, I don't think anybody's ego should be motivating their involvement or activism in this movement. I think that's what makes it pure when you're using your artistic talent and your creative skill or prowess to tell the truth in a way that um, we are just not seeing. When you remove the ego from it and, and tell the truth, every single time if you let yourself get that open, you will be replenished. Well, um, thank you so much for being here today. We, you really blessed blessed us today thank with you. your insights and your words. Thank you. So thank you. Ebony, your poem was poignant, raw, and haunting. It gave me chills. Thank you for these beautiful words and using your art to bring light to this issue. In keeping with Ebony's powerful work, here's how you talking about by Janelle Monet.
When discussing issues like the ongoing threat to the lives of black men and women, it's important to pull back the lens and look at the systems at the root of our worst problems. America's school-to-prison pipeline is one of those systems. In September, we aired a discussion with author and mindfulness advocate Fleet Mall, as well as renowned poet Jimmy Santiago Baca. Let's hear what they had to say about the school-to-prison pipeline. My name is Sydney Lamb, and I'm the founder and the director of Mindful New Mexico. And I have the audacious belief that collective action that is rooted in mindfulness is a radical approach to poverty and violence. And it's with that idea and with that vision that I invited Fleet Mall and Jimmy Baca to come and to share with us that there are different ways to do things than the way that we've always done it. And there are ways to make systems change. Please join me in welcoming Fleet Mall and Jimmy Santiago Baca. You know, I want to talk today a little bit about the issue. I know you all are more than familiar with it, but I just want to name a few things, and then we'll talk about maybe what some of the answers are. And then I'm going to turn it over to Jimmy, who can really speak from experience as someone who grew up as a young person in the worst of circumstances right here in Albuquerque and went right through that pipeline into prison and into, into some ser very serious consequences and miraculously became the incredible poet he is today. We've all heard the data about the prison system. It's become a self-perpetuating industry, you know, called the prison industrial complex. It's, a, it's an $80 billion a year industry. And of course, like every industry, they lobby the state and federal legislatures, and they lobby for tough sentencing laws simply to drive that growth curve of the industry. And it's just quite natural the way that that kind of worked its way back through our culture and into our school systems to create our school systems as a feeder system for that industry. It just evolves out of the fear-based mind, which despite our innate basic goodness as human beings, we're also programmed for survival. I mean, that's job one for any organism. So unless we're actively programming ourselves for resilience and caring and mindfulness and love and connection and community, then that fear-based survival program starts to take over. And it creates the fear-based survival and shame-based and punishment-reward social systems that we have. So that prison industry has naturally recruited the school system, you know, as the kind of farm teams for, for the major leagues. And the way that it is, you know, manifested coming out of the, the drug war and the, the drug laws and so forth of the 1970s and 1980s and the zero tolerance policy, we began taking this zero tolerance policy into schools. You know, we suspended last year 8,000 preschoolers. We suspended 3 million children from school last year, half of them children of color. And we walk five-year-olds and six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds out of school in handcuffs. The zero tolerance policy and bringing the police into schools has allowed teachers and, you know, Bless, bless the teachers, they work hard, they're under-resourced, they're not trained right, but nonetheless, it has allowed them to abdicate their responsibility. It's allowed the school administrators and the school counselors to abdicate their responsibility. In many cases, it's allowed the parents to abdicate their responsibility. Instead, people just call the cops. The cops all are right there in school, right? So this is what's been going on, and it just feeds into the prison system. But there's an answer. You know, New York State, 
is just getting ready now to pass a law that you cannot suspend or arrest kids preschool through second or third grade. I'm not sure which, right? Um, you know, that's a start. But we have to raise our voices and demand these kind of legislative changes. We have to demand policy changes. We have to get the police out of our schools and get parents into the schools, right? The police are there because the rest of us are abdicating our responsibility. I'm not picking on anybody or demonizing anybody, but if we don't all pull together and get back involved with the schools, we are turning the schools over to law enforcement and to the criminal justice system. We are criminalizing the normal developmental processes. The good news is mindfulness improves all of that dramatically. Dramatic results on dealing with ADHD, anxiety, depression, addiction. A healthy brain is basically very integrated and mindfulness can create brains that are dramatically more integrated for all of us. So getting basic mindfulness training for teachers and students into K through 12 education, which is catching fire and catching traction around the country. So thank you. I'm gonna turn it over to Jimmy. Well, I can attest to the, uh, to the effectiveness of mindfulness because uh, Fleet's one of my role models. He had this way of making me feel okay with myself. And not too many people have done that, including myself. More often than not, we're conceived in a sort of emotional, spiritual landscape that predicts chaos, instability, drug addiction, illiteracy. I mean, my grandmother was so simple. She says to me, you know what? What do you mean, Mijito? Uh, you can't compete with each other. In knowledge, you share it. Oh, no, Grandma. I'm going to take Willie. I'm going to stomp his ass with an A+. Plus. You know? So you, can't, you, you, don't, you, can't, you can't use knowledge as a weapon. And yet tell me what great successful person hasn't used knowledge as a weapon. For instance, I was advocating at the National Booksellers Association. There was like six or 7,000 book publishers there. And I was advocating that we should, that we should encourage in our children to steal books. You should have seen them. More, more than once I've been told, you'll never come back here again, you bastard. And I'm like, well, I can't believe you're actually advocating that. I said, well, let me explain to you why I want everybody to go out and steal books. We're like rats in a cage. The walls that we build around our children, they're already under siege when they're born. They're already captives. You know, if I were to ask myself, what is a wall? Is it me being eight years old, wanting to play a piano, and the nuns walk into St. Anthony's Orphanage, and they want to make a good impression on the people who come visit us? And then they say, oh, you know what? I think we'll take that white kid to play the piano. Oh, that's Lee Walker. He hates piano. But there's Jimmy Baca. Granted, the kid looks a little bit homely. That's because he's, uh, he's from El Estacado de Estancia. Es un llanero. Es un quinacero de abicu. But we can't put him on the piano. And that morning, I brushed my teeth the first time in four years. And I combed my hair the first time in 10 years, just so I could be picked to play the piano. But because I didn't look good, they picked Lee Walker. And the look that went between me and Lee when he walked up to the piano, I looked at him. He looked at me. And as he walked up to go up to the piano, he turned around. At the, at the age of nine or 10, 
I felt a wall from the demon go up. Who did that to us? We have to teach these children the self-sustaining warrior traits of how to love yourself when you're alone. Because loneliness is our worst enemy. Poverty means you're unwanted. Illiteracy means you're unwanted. You can translate anything into a wall makes you feel unwanted. You build walls because the other person doesn't want you. In this case, society doesn't want us. Thank you, Fleet Mall, for your honesty about how important it is for the community to be involved in the educational system. And thank you, Jimmy Santiago Baca, for highlighting the importance of how important it is to love yourself when you're alone. Now, here is The Wall by Pink Floyd. greatest stories of 2016 is the No Dapple movement, where water protectors, who still guard the Missouri River, showed the world the power of indigenous resilience and prayerful resistance. On December 4, 2016, their efforts were successful when the Army Corps of Engineers announced a halt to construction on the Dakota Access Pipeline. Before that victory, senior fellow Polly Dinetclaw interviewed Nick Estes, co-founder of the Red Nation, about the movement. Let's revisit that conversation. Yate, my name is Polly Dinekla, Senior Fellow for Generation Justice, and I'm here with Nick Estes, co-founder of the Red Nation, a collective dedicated to the liberation of Indigenous people. Nick, welcome back to Generation Justice. It's great to be back. Uh, Nick, can we just have you please introduce yourself? My name is Nick Estes. I'm Kui Chasha from the Lower Bru Sioux Tribe. I'm also a doctoral candidate in American Studies at the University of New Mexico and a co-founder of the Red Nation. Nick, can you help us to understand some of the historical context for oil pipelines like the Dakota Access Pipeline in North and South Dakota? Sure. I think a good place to begin would actually be to talk about the history of the the, the Missouri River, which we call the Minnesota. Why that is important to talk about is because the Army Corps of Engineers lays sole jurisdiction over the Missouri River, and that is really sort of the point of contention with the Ochete Shaokoni, the Great Sioux Nation, and the Dakota Access Pipeline. The Dakota Access Pipeline proposes to drill under or to tunnel under the Missouri River, the fresh water source for 80 million humans right, and countless non-human relatives. How the Army Corps of Engineers 
uh, maintains and lays claim to the river stems back into the early sort of uh, 20th century when the state of South Dakota as well as North Dakota um, and all the states in the Missouri River Basin got together and proposed a plan to dam and develop the river. And what ended up happening is in 1944, uh, an act of Congress called the Flood Control Act, which later became known as the Pick Sloan Plan, authorized the Army Corps of Engineers and the Bureau of Reclamation um, to build a series of five dams on the main stem of the river. All of those dams disproportionately um, flooding seven Sioux reservations, um, but also flooding um, pretty much every tribe that lives on the Missouri River's uh, uh, land or shoreline. The Army Corps of Engineers has already killed the river, right, um, through damming it because it destroyed 90% of our commercial timber and over 75% of the wildlife on our on our land. And prior to the dams, we could, you know, depend on the river as a, as a source of food, but also a source of water. You could literally drink the water. That's how pure it was. And what the pipeline proposes to do is to actually cross that, that river, cross the threshold of fresh water and further contaminate and further kill and destroy um, life in the Missouri River Basin because it's not a question of uh, if it breaks, it's a matter of when it breaks. And that risk is always externalized uh, or placed upon the most vulnerable communities. And in this case, it's native communities. The Dakota Access Pipeline was originally proposed to be built north of Bismarck, North Dakota, which is a predominantly white settlement. And Bismarck citizens got together and squashed that idea. And so instead it was built south or downriver of Bismarck. Downriver of them is, is the Standing Rock Sioux uh, tribe. We become sort of the expendable, the expendable population. And it's not just Standing Rock. South of Standing Rock, it's Cheyenne River. South of Cheyenne River, it's the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe, my tribe, as well as Crow Creek. South of that, it's um, the Yankton Sioux Tribe. And just south of that, it's the Santee Sioux Tribe. Um, and all of these tribes are river tribes um, that have historic, uh, traditional, cultural, spiritual, and legal claims to this river. Awesome, Nick. Thank you so much. Um, what is the significance of this many Native nations and allies coming together for the movement against construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline? It's, it's highly significant. The last time there was this significant gathering of Native nations was in 1974. And actually, it happened in, in the Standing Rock Reservation as well. And in 1974, that was the International Indian Treaty Council um, gathering, which brought in 90 nations. Um, and that was the beginning of the international, uh, the indigenous international movement at the United Nations. So Standing Rock kind of plays this kind of significant role in that history, you know, 40 years ago. And then 40 years later, we have an entire generation of people that have come back. Um, but this time, they're doing it better. They're bringing in um, Native nations. I believe there's over 200 Native nations represented, uh, as well as um, various non-Native communities, allies, etc. And so that's important to remember because I think when we think of um, this particular issue, we think of it sort of as a parochial um, native issue. You know, that's the, that's the issue 
um, with that sort of sentiment is that Native issues do affect everyone. What do you think this means for the future of Indigenous liberation? I think um, we need to sort of understand that while this is an environmental issue, oftentimes mainstream environmentalism doesn't sort of account for colonialism. And what is happening here is we see attack dogs, handcuffs, flex cuffs, assault rifles, caterpillar earth movers, and media censorship and harassment. If we look at all of those things, right, they're instruments of the state, and they're all being deployed at once um, against prayer, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> against spirit. Like, who, who calls the National Guard on a prayer camp? Like, imagine if, if the Baptist church were having some kind of congregation along the river, and they deployed the Highway Patrol and the National Guard to shut it down. That's what's happening <laughs> in Standing Rock right now. And this is really sort of the future of what I would call like, a, you know, a revolutionary moment uh, in the sense that we possess the moral, the political, and the spiritual high ground, and the state knows that. So everything that they're deploying against us is they're just literally throwing, they're just throwing stuff on the wall to see what sticks. And so as a member of the Ocheti Shikawin, what does this gathering, this type of support mean to you? It means a lot. Um, My grandparents and a lot of my relatives had fought against the construction of the dams that destroyed our land and to protect our river. A lot of them lost their livelihood, you know, fighting to protect the Minnesota, the Missouri River. And I don't think in their wildest imagination that they ever could have conceived that you know, thousands of people from around the country, if not millions, um, have galvanized in support of the protection of our of our river. So it is very significant. Nick, what is the most important thing you want people to know about this movement? This isn't a spontaneous action. This has been part of a longer tradition of Native resistance that is highly organized and very powerful, right? And we're witnessing that right now. And the people on the ground, we see, you know, people chaining their bodies to heavy machinery and literally like laying their bodies on the line. But what we don't see as part of that struggle is the people who are cooking, who are taking care of children, so that these water protectors can be out there on the front lines. And I think it's important to remember that, that it's like the sort of the spirit of resistance isn't just in, you know, or on the front lines, so to speak. We have to think about the trespass of a pipeline across our um, treaty territories and across our river, you know, represent the ongoing trespass of, of violations against our LGBTQ relatives our youth and our women, that those things, you know, this represents sort of like a sort of totality of all those sort of struggles. And we have to remember that it's not just at the front lines or on the front lines that this is happening because the the front lines for us are everywhere. Um, And this is really just sort of an an intensification of that. And and we need to pay attention to that. And so, Nick, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? I would like to, you know, people are listening and they want to support 
the encampment, I think the best way to do that is to go to standingrock.org to make an online donation to their, their PayPal, which goes directly to their legal funds. But they also have links to other things that they need at the encamp encampment. And also, if you decide to go up to the encampment, which you should, I encourage everyone that is able to, um, to do so, um, you should also volunteer Whatever skill you have, if you can work in the kitchen, if you can build something, if you can dig a hole, you know, if you can take care of children, go there to help give back. Nick, thank you so much for talking with us at Generation Justice and really giving us that historical context and also the big picture on this issue and also uh, spending a little bit of time with us here at Generation Justice. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. For Generation Justice, I'm Polly Dineclaw. Thank you, Nick Estes, for explaining what is happening in Standing Rock. It really helped me understand the history of No Dapple, plus how harmful this pipeline will be. Now here is the song, No Dapple, by Stuart James. Away the ignorance, play it through the speakers just to make sure that they listen. And we treat it like prisoners in this country that we live in. Everything is fine to the toil that we swimming in. Companies are acting like this fuel is unlimited. Ignoring repercussions just because they don't have to live with it. Let me come and dig a hole up in your front yard. Guaranteed it won't be long before this cop cars. They saying that we hostile because we chose to make a stand. When the oil starts to spill, then it will desecrate the land. These companies don't care because it's all part of the plan. Seven We've come to the end of another year of amazing shows. Thank you to Hanin Amir, Sam Quinones, Ebony Isis Booth, Nick Estes, Fleet Mall, and Jimmy Santiago Baca. Your words and your work have truly enriched our year. And thank you to our co-hosts, Jakia Fuller and Sami Asad. Production assistance for this show came from Kateri Zuni, Matthew Brown, Alicia Hernandez, George Luna Pena, and Roberta Rael. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. With additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Konalma Health Foundation, the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Matthew Brown. And I'm Polly Dineclaw. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night, woke folk, and remember, tomorrow's another day and you are loved. Shout out to Chairman Archambo. Shout out to all my Standing Rock family. Shout out to all the natives across the nation. Shout out to Shailene Woodley for standing in solidarity with our native people. Shout out to all the celebrities who are supporting the movement. Shout out to everybody across the world who is supporting the movement. Shout out to everybody who is listening right now. Ain't nobody moving till this is over. We ain't going nowhere. We 
still here. Native Pride 365. 